What's up everyone and welcome back to another installment of Drew Crime. I'm your host Drew V and for this episode I will be covering the missing person case of Jennifer Cassie. Now Jennifer's case is up there with one of the most frustrating cases that I have covered so far and although most of these unsolved cases I cover are frustrating, this one truly is near the top. This case reminds me much of the John Bonet case due to the fact that the possibilities of what may have happened to Jennifer seem endless and almost every piece of evidence in this case seems that it could go one way or the other, most of which leads you to a dead end. Jennifer Cassie disappeared from her under-construction condominium complex called the Mosaic at Millennia in Orlando, Florida, on the morning of January 24, 2006. On the morning she went missing, she failed to show up for work, which immediately raised concern among her family, friends, and co-workers. Her family then contacted law enforcement and an investigation into her disappearance would be set in motion. Jennifer's 2004 Chevy Malibu was found two days after her disappearance and it was found in a different condominium complex called Huntington on the Green, which was just about a mile down the road from hers. After security cameras had been checked by law enforcement where Jennifer's car had been found, they were then able to view someone parking Jennifer's Chevy Malibu in the parking lot shortly after Jennifer failed to show up to work. And then the person proceeded to abandon her vehicle, and in doing so, this person then walked right past the cameras that captured this all. But due to the video quality and the angle of the camera, this person has never been able to be identified. As this story unfolds, we are able to learn that the Orlando Police Department may have not done such a great job in this case, and really could have done some much better investigating earlier on. And at the end of this episode, you'll have a much better understanding of what I mean. There are many different theories out there when it comes to Jennifer's disappearance, some believing that it was a random act of violence coming from some undocumented construction workers living at her complex, while others believe she may have been abducted by someone Jennifer knew, to which I will explore all of these options towards the end of this episode. It's now been over 17 years since Jennifer has gone missing, and despite the passage of time, Jennifer Cassie's case remains open and unsolved. The lack of progress has been frustrating for her family, even to the point that they now have taken the lead from law enforcement in Jennifer's case. Her family, mainly her dad and mom Drew and Joyce Cassie, have never given up hope on trying to find answers as to what may have happened to their daughter Jennifer. In this episode, I want to talk a little bit about who Jennifer Kessie was before she disappeared. Then I will get right into Jennifer's story and where it has led up until the past few years. And then I will get into some of the persons of interest and some different theories many have had over the years about Jennifer's disappearance. And then I will conclude the episode with any last thoughts or opinions that I have toward this case. This is Drew Crime, Episode 15, Jennifer Kessie. Listened all your statements, each one of them, and I'm really sorry to everyone I've heard. Thank you, Your Honor. Are you saying? I question him, huh? Are you saying? Saying? Yes. That's relative. I could talk to you except Yeah.
and I just started branching out. Uh, dogs, cats. I suppose it could have turned into a, a normal hobby like taxidermy. Now, before I move forward, I just wanted to let everyone know where I got most of my information for this episode and where you can find it as well, and also where you can find my Drew Crumb episodes that I publish. So check out the show 48 Hours, Where is Jennifer Kessie episode, which can be found in season 33 on episode 52. Also check out the WFTV Orlando 9 news YouTube video on this case, and I will have that link in the episode description box. For some good deep dives on this case, check out the podcast Unconcluded and True Crime Garage, and also check out Crime Weekly on YouTube. I feel that all of these people did a nice job uncovering this case. You can also find a lot of information on this case if you go to www.jenniferkessie.com or visit the Find Jennifer Kessie Facebook page. Now you can find any of my Drew Crime episodes on most major platforms such as Spotify and others. You can also find me on my YouTube channel, Drew Crime, where I put together some video presentations for the episodes I publish. And as always, feel free to leave a comment on any of the episodes. And if it's something you like or are interested in, please drop me a like and subscribe. Also, thank you for all the continued support I have been receiving from everyone as of late. As of now, I have over 300 subscribers on YouTube. And although it doesn't seem like much, I honestly couldn't be happier. So thank you again to everyone who continues to tune in. Now with all that out of the way, let's get right into who Jennifer Kessie was. Jennifer Joyce Kessie was born on May 20th, 1981 in Tampa, Florida and was just 24 when she disappeared. And if alive today, she would be 42 years old. Jennifer's family consisted of her younger brother, Logan, who Jennifer was very close to and supported of, her father, Drew, and her mother, Joyce, to which her parents have been very strong advocates in her disappearance. Jennifer has been described as someone who is very responsible, very safe, hardworking, kind, caring, and nurturing as well. According to sources, Jennifer was a graduate of Vivian Gaither High School in Tampa, Florida. Guess he attended the University of Central Florida in Orlando and graduated in 2003 with a degree in finance. At the time she disappeared, she was working as a finance manager at Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company in Ocoee, Florida, and had recently bought a luxury condominium all on her own in Orlando. Jennifer had moved into the new condo on November 24, 2005, before she would disappear just two months later. At the time of her disappearance, she was also involved in a long-distance relationship with a man by the name of Rob Allen, who lived about three hours away in Fort Lauderdale at the time, and I will briefly speak about Rob again here shortly. From what I have gathered in my research, Jennifer truly was a wonderful person, and Jennifer's parents have even stated on the JenniferKessie.com page that at no time had Jennifer shown signs of discontent with her life, relationships, or work environment. So it really becomes even more baffling as to why someone would choose to take away this woman's very promising future that was ahead of her. Now let's go ahead and get right into Jennifer Kessie's story. Before Jennifer Kessie went missing on January 24, 2006, 
On Thursday, January 29th, Jennifer and her boyfriend of around a year, Rob Allen, flew from Fort Lauderdale to St. LaCroix for a quick vacation with other members of Rob's family. After returning from their vacation on Monday, January 23rd, Jennifer then drove back to Orlando from Fort Lauderdale, which again was about three hours away, and went straight to work, arriving around 9 a.m. By 6 p.m. that evening, Jen said goodbye to her boss, John Wilman, and made the 12-minute drive home from work, going through a toll at 6.15 p.m. While on the way home that evening, Jen had called her parents Drew and Joyce Cassie and told them about her trip. After returning home where she lived by herself, people close to her believed that she most likely checked her mail and then changed from her work clothes into her sweats, which was a very common thing for Jennifer to do. Later that night, Jennifer spoke with her younger brother Logan, who had been staying at Jennifer's condo while she was gone. Logan had also been there with a few other of his friends, in which one of them, Travis, left his work cell phone behind. After finding Travis's phone when Jennifer got home, she also spoke with Travis that night as well and was making arrangements to FedEx his phone back to him the following day on Tuesday. On this particular night, Jennifer also spoke with one of her friends, Lauren McCarthy, about her trip, and then the last known person to speak with Jennifer that night was her boyfriend, Rob, around 10 p.m. Jennifer had told Rob she was in bed when she was on the phone with him, and it's also been said that during their conversation there was a little bit of an argument pertaining to their long-distance relationship, but it was nothing more than that. This becomes important because it would later tie into one of the Orlando Police Department's theories early on as to why Jennifer went missing. Now, real quick, the Orlando Police Department had suggested right away that Jen had a fight with her boyfriend that night, took off, and would show back up later on. The Orlando PD concluded her cell phone pings came from late Monday night before and after her conversation with Rob, which ultimately would lead her to a shady part of town. And I do have to say here that the ping data information was not looked at correctly by law enforcement, and a Verizon specialist later on would say that the data was no good and unreliable. Orlando PD also had said both her phone and Travis's phone were turned off sometime around 10 p.m. that Monday night, but from what I have gathered, this was not entirely true, and according to people close to Jennifer, she used her phone as an alarm clock so she would have no reason to turn hers off. Also, Jennifer was known as a homebody, and once she was comfortable at home, she wouldn't leave again. So now the following day would approach on Tuesday morning and normally Jennifer would leave her condo anywhere around 7.45 a.m. and call Rob and the two would talk until she arrived at work around 9 a.m. Well, on this particular morning, Jennifer never called Rob. So Rob called Jennifer's cell phone and landline, but he did not receive an answer from both. According to Jennifer's parents, she and Rob did not talk the morning of Tuesday, January 24th. Rob even called Jen at work and was told she had not arrived yet. When she did not show up for work for her 11 a.m. meeting, her employer immediately called them to see if they knew where Jen was. Her parents then tried to reach her at the condo and on her cell phone, but were unsuccessful. And it's been said that this would be the first time she hadn't answered their calls in eight years. So right away, they knew something was wrong. 
Her parents then left their home around Tampa Bay, which was about two hours from Orlando, and during the drive, Drew Kessie had called the Mosaic property manager, who then went over to her unit with another employee and went inside. And besides her car being gone, they said nothing seemed out of the ordinary, and there didn't seem to be any sign of a struggle. After her parents arrived at Jennifer's condo and not finding her or her car at home, they immediately notified the police. Her parents had also called family, friends, and even hospitals, but still no sign of Jennifer. Her brother Logan and his friend Travis also had met her parents at Jen's apartment around 3 p.m., and Rob would also come up later from Fort Lauderdale. At this time, her brother Logan would start to knock and try opening every door in the complex looking for Jennifer, but there was no sign of her anywhere. The only door that was unlocked was the unfinished unit across from Jennifer's, but unfortunately, there were no clues inside. Logan had even approached a white van full of workers trying to ask them about Jennifer, but all of these workers just seemed to ignore him. After her family had arrived at Jennifer's condo, they noticed that the door was locked, the bed was unmade, and there were two work outfits that had been laid out on the bed. A pair of Jennifer's shoes were missing and her luggage was left unpacked in the hallway. There was mail on the counter and the junk mail was in the trash. Clothes she would normally wear to bed were on the bathroom floor. There were puddles of water that were still in the shower. And it's been said that Jennifer always showered in the morning, never in the evening. Her damp towel was also found draped over the washing machine in the laundry room. Also in her bathroom was her contact lens case that was empty. Her makeup and hair dryer were out, which has also suggested to many people that she was most likely getting ready for work that morning before she disappeared. Missing from her unit was Travis's work cell phone, her cell phone and purse, her iPod, her car keys, her briefcase, and again her car. And all of these things she would have taken with her to work that day, and none of these items besides her car have ever been recovered. By that late afternoon, Jennifer's parents had already printed off hundreds of flyers with their picture, car, and license plate number. They then met with Detective Wright that night from the Orlando Police Department, who would later on be replaced by Detective Browning. Now, before I move on, I just want to stop here and talk about Jennifer's condo for just a minute, and also talk about what was going on in her complex as well. Now, when Jennifer had moved into her second floor condo, there was a bunch of remodeling and construction going on at the Mosaic, and Jennifer was the first person to purchase a condo in that part of the complex, leaving her pretty isolated with a few neighbors around her, and one of the neighbors lived right by where Jennifer's car was parked, and that morning they did say they heard nothing out of the ordinary. Her condo also came with a panic cord or button located in her bedroom in case of any emergencies. And as far as I know, that cord was connected and working. Her mother described it as a cord you would pull and it would activate 911, but I've also read that it was a button as well. There were lots of construction workers going in and out of the complex freely, and even some of these workers were living inside some of these units, and from what I understand, this was being allowed. It's also important to point out here that at some point, Jennifer and everyone who lived in her building had a set of keys stolen from them. And there was also a key-making machine located in the complex's office, which was in plain sight and even had a box of blank keys right next to it. 
So I think it's fair to say here that gaining access to Jennifer's condo may have not been that difficult, especially since some of these workers most likely had a master key to some of these units. I also wanted to point out here that the Mosaic did not have any security surveillance located on the property, and they wouldn't even install any cameras until two years after Jennifer's disappearance. And also, both the inside and the outside of Jennifer's apartment was never tested for any forensic evidence by law enforcement. Now, at the time, Jennifer was living alone, and she had mentioned to others that at times she felt some discomfort with some of the workers that were present during the construction. And even some of these workers had already been in Jennifer's apartment before to do some work. So with that being said, the main theory in this case is that Jennifer may have been attacked and taken by one or more of these workers, to which I have heard that many of them were undocumented, and after law enforcement's presence had started being felt around the complex, many of these workers would then just disappear. There was also a particular worker by the name of Chino that has been looked at hard and talked about a lot in this case. And I will be talking more about Chino later on in this episode when I get into some of the persons of interest surrounding this case. In conclusion to this part, the Kessie family was under the impression at the time that the Mosaic was a safe place for Jennifer to live. But it's very obvious that it wasn't, and safety and security didn't seem to be much of a priority for this property at the time. Now, about two days later on Thursday, January 26, law enforcement would discover a key piece of evidence in this case. That morning, the Orlando PD received a phone call from a resident at the Huntington-on-the-Green complex, which was about a mile away from Jennifer's condo, and it has been said to have been a pretty shitty area containing drugs and prostitution. Well, the caller had called the police about a black four-door Chevy Malibu parked in the lot that they had seen in stories about Jennifer in the news. So the police went over to the Huntington on the green, and sure enough, it ended up being Jennifer's car parked in one of the parking stalls. Upon finding her vehicle, there was no evidence of trauma inside the vehicle, and inside her car, law enforcement did not find any blood and Jennifer's driver's seat was also pushed way back further than she would have left it. However, they did find a palm print that ended up belonging to Jennifer, and they also found a partial DNA sample, but it was too small to test at the time, and people have said that the car seemed to may have been wiped down as well. They also found two pairs of flip-flops, a DVD player that was a gift to Jennifer, a cell phone charger, and a broken key that belonged to Jennifer's mailbox. So at this point, after finding and processing Jennifer's car, law enforcement contacted her boyfriend Rob and had him come in before they had even opened the trunk of her car. Orlando PD's number one suspect was Rob at the time, and it's been said that they had Rob come down while they opened Jen's trunk, basically to observe his reaction, but Jennifer was not in the trunk of that vehicle. As far as I know, anything that was found in the trunk of that car has never been disclosed by Orlando PD. Now, there was also another key piece of evidence that was found by law enforcement at the Huntington on the Green, and this evidence would come from two surveillance cameras that were located on the property. One camera was overlooking the parking lot, and this camera was able to capture someone parking Jennifer's car in that parking stall right at about noon, the same day Jennifer went missing. 
This person then sits in the car for 32 seconds before getting out and walking away. Real quick, on the unconcluded podcast, it is stated that the Huntington on the Green Complex was known to law enforcement as a drop-off point for chop shops. And it is in my opinion that whoever wanted the car left at that particular complex did not intend for that car to ever be recovered. Now, this second camera was located over the pool area, and this footage captures this person walking by after parking Jennifer's car. Unfortunately, due to the angle of the camera, we are not able to see this person's face because it was being blocked by the height of the fence. Also, this footage only took pictures every 2-3 to three seconds per frame, so it makes it even more difficult to make this person out. From what we can kind of make out in this surveillance footage is the person looks to be wearing black dress shoes and some light colored clothing to which many people believe it looks a lot like something a painter or some type of maintenance worker would be wearing. But due to the fact that the footage is black and white, it's just too hard to confirm as to what actual color of clothing this person was wearing. Also in one of the frames you can see the backside of this person's head and it seems to look like someone sporting a man bun type of hairstyle or a hat, but I've also even heard someone describe it as a bike helmet. Either way, this particular detail has never been confirmed either. Two last details that have also never been confirmed is the sex of this person and the height of this person. Many people believe this person was estimated to be around 5'3 to 5'5 in height but I've also heard that they may have been more around 5'8 as well, which was the same height as Jennifer Kessie. I do believe some people speculate this person was taller due to the fact that Jennifer's driver's seat was pushed further back than she would have originally had it, but even with all these conflicting details, this person in the surveillance footage has never been able to be identified, and this footage wouldn't even be released to the public until 2007, which was over a year after Jennifer went missing. So as the investigation carried on, law enforcement used scent dogs to track Jennifer's scent from Huntington on the Green, and one of the dogs led officials back to her condo complex, which again was around 1.1 miles away. Once the dog reached the mosaic, the dog didn't go through the main gate, but rather through a hole in the fence leading to the back stairwell of Jennifer's place. So the question here is, did this person who abandoned Jennifer's car then walk back to the Mosaic? And if so, then why? There are tons of theories as to why this person of interest would have done just that, but if this person had anything to do with Jennifer's disappearance, then I find that to be a pretty risky move at this point. I personally think that the person of interest may have gone back to the Mosaic and got into a vehicle somewhere by Jennifer's parking spot and left. Otherwise, I feel the dog scent would have gone back to her front door had they went inside her condo. But honestly, I'm not quite sure on all of this, and it's just one of those pieces of evidence in this case that can be interpreted in many different ways. So after no sign of Jennifer anywhere, a search was conducted around the beginning of February that consisted of dogs, men on horseback, and many volunteers. There was a five-mile search radius set up around the Mosaic, and they also searched around the Huntington on the Green, where Jennifer's car was found. But to no avail, searchers would fall short in finding any new clues as to Jennifer's whereabouts. 
There would also be searches conducted much later on in this case, one in 2009, 2010, and 2012. But again, nothing was found to help narrow down this case. So after years of little to no progression in this case, in 2016, Jennifer was declared legally deceased by the state of Florida. After this, the family hired a private investigator and a lawyer to obtain Jennifer's case file from the Orlando PD. And then in 2019, the Kessies would win their suit against the Orlando PD and Jennifer's case files would be handed over after the Kessies would pay them thousands and thousands of dollars. In March of 2019, the Kessie family received over 16,000 pages of police notes, pictures, and videos pertaining to Jennifer's case. And currently, the family is now working closely with the FDLE, which stands for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Now, this is where I will go ahead and conclude Jennifer's story up to this point. Now, at this part in the episode, we know that Jennifer went missing on Tuesday, January 24th, 2006, when she failed to show up at work. Two days later, we know that law enforcement found her vehicle in a different complex about a mile from her home, and that there is also video surveillance of the person of interest parking her vehicle and then ab abandoning it. We also know that a dog tracked a scent from Jennifer's car back to her condo. But besides having all of this information, there still wasn't a whole lot to go off of. So now I'm going to list some of the persons of interest that have been established throughout the years in this case. And on the last two of these persons of interest, I will expand a little bit further going into a couple theories that I feel the strongest about and that have also been highly considered by many other people. Also, none of these people I speak about on this list have ever been charged with any crimes relating to Jennifer's disappearance. Now, to begin the list of persons of interest, I wanted to start with Rob Allen since he was Jennifer's boyfriend at the time she disappeared and the last known person to speak with her. I can say right now that Rob has a solid alibi that morning Jennifer would go missing and it has been confirmed he was at work in Fort Lauderdale during this time and his phone records show usage activity on Tuesday morning in the Fort Lauderdale area as well. Rob was also very cooperative towards law enforcement in this case, and I honestly couldn't find anything that casts any suspicion towards Rob. Next on the list, we have an ex-boyfriend of Jennifer, and we will call him Matt. From what I have gathered in my research, Matt was an ex-boyfriend that didn't take the breakup with Jennifer very well. He was also at a bar very close to Jennifer's condo the night before she's been thought to have disappeared, but as far as I know, he has a pretty solid alibi from his roommates and girlfriend at the time. Apparently Matt was very intoxicated that night, but was able to somehow make it back home 30 minutes from where he was, and according to his roommates, Matt arrived back home around 1, 1.30 a.m. There are some people out there that do not consider Matt's alibi to be very rock solid, but besides where he was that night, there's just really not enough evidence there to cast major suspicion towards him, in my opinion. Now, don't get me wrong, I can't rule him out completely since we don't know what happened to Jennifer, but from what little evidence there is, I just find him a lot less plausible of having anything to do with Jennifer gone missing. Also, Matt did agree to do a polygraph, but Orlando Police Department never made it happen or followed through with it. 
Next on the list, there was also another guy that has been talked about and speculated about a lot, and this individual was a co-worker of Jennifer's during the time of her disappearance, and I will refer to him as Johnny. Well, it's been said that Johnny had a little thing for Jennifer over the years of knowing one another, and many people speculate this man was upset by Jennifer and Rob's relationship. And because of this reason, many people also speculate he had something to do with Jennifer going missing. From what I have gathered online, this guy Johnny lived right next to the Huntington on the Green, where Jennifer Carr was dumped. It's also been said he also made a distasteful comment to someone else after her disappearance, saying something along the lines of, the Gators probably already got her. And Johnny's also been described as a Hispanic man, to which many believe was the origin of the person of interest captured in the surveillance. Also, I was not able to find a confirmed alibi for where Johnny was on Monday night after Jennifer came home from work, and there's also a lot of chatter that he was late to work that Tuesday morning that Jennifer went missing. So there's definitely a lot here that could cast some suspicion towards Johnny possibly having something to do with Jennifer's disappearance, but unfortunately it must have not been enough for law enforcement to be able to pursue this individual any further. Now, to theorize on this for a second, I personally agree with many others that Johnny may have somehow been involved in Jennifer's disappearance, and besides his distasteful comment, the location of his home, his aggressiveness towards Jennifer to go out with him, and his unknown whereabouts both the night before Jennifer went missing and the morning of, I find the timing of Jennifer's car drop to be very interesting as well. Reason I say this is because Jennifer's car was dropped off at Huntington on the Green at right at about noon on that Tuesday, which was within the hour to which her company had notified her parents that she had not shown up for work. Now, maybe the time frame is just a coincidence here, but I speculate it's possible that someone she worked with knew that people would be looking for her when she didn't show up, or word had traveled around the office that morning, so then the next step was to move Jennifer's vehicle. There's also been a rumor that Johnny showed up late to work that day, and if he did, I would love to know what time he had arrived. Otherwise, if he was already present at work at the time, that would mean someone else would have to have been notified to move the car for him. In conclusion to this theory, I speculate that all of the circumstantial evidence surrounding Johnny and the time frame in which things happened during this time could mean that it's very plausible for him to pull this off. But again, I personally feel that if he was able to do this, he most likely did not act on this alone. Now, the last person of interest I wanted to speak about was a worker at the Mosaic named Chino, who also claimed at the time that he lived in one of the units at the Mosaic with his girlfriend. And as far as I know, Chino living there with this girl has never been confirmed. It's been said by another female resident at the time that some nights Chino would be out late walking around the complex, and although this person claims Chino was very friendly, at the same time they felt it was almost fake or even felt staged. Chino would also knock on this resident's door unexpectedly at times, one time Chino claiming he had said he had gotten a fight with his girlfriend, so he just needed to get out of the house. Whatever his excuses were for stopping by, I personally feel that it's very strange who would think it's appropriate to bother residents at their home, especially younger women. 
After hearing what some female residents have said about him and other maintenance workers at the Mosaic, I honestly get the feeling that he and others were possibly casing out the complex looking for vulnerable women. Chino, like Johnny, has also been described as the person of interest in the surveillance footage from the Huntington on the Green, but as far as we know, that's never been confirmed as well. Chino was looked at hard by law enforcement, in this case, even taking a lie detector test at one point, but the test results came back that he had passed. And to be truthfully honest, I, like many other people, have Chino high on the person of interest list especially after he was convicted a few years later, in 2008, of sexually assaulting a female minor. So this leads me into what I would call the main theory in this case, which is that Jennifer was abducted by some of these workers that were present at the Mosaic. Like I said earlier, there were many different workers at the Mosaic coming and going from the property, and some of them were even living in some of the vacant units in the complex including the unit directly across from Jennifer's. From what I have gathered in my research, there was no documentation of who any of these guys were, and when law enforcement started questioning these guys, some of them would just disappear. Many people believe some of these workers may have known what Jennifer's daily routine was, and this is how they were able to calculate the best time to abduct Jennifer that Tuesday morning, or even possibly the night before on Monday. Other factors that could help contribute to this theory is the surveillance footage from the Huntington on the Green, to which many people believe the person of interest captured the footage was wearing some type of workman's clothing, and the fact that the search dogs captured a scent from Jennifer's car back to her condo complex. Now, the only problem with this theory is there's no forensic evidence that has been found yet that could conclusively support this idea. But as far as theories go in this case, I would have to say at this point that this particular one seems the most plausible. There's just too much mystery that surrounds what was actually going on around the Mosaic at Millennia at the time, and again, it didn't seem like safety protocols were much of a priority on this property. Now, in conclusion to this episode, I personally have no idea what happened to Jennifer Kessie because there's just not enough evidence right now in this case that really points in one particular direction. I really am not even quite sure if Jennifer's abduction occurred that Monday night or that Tuesday morning. Jennifer's family seems pretty certain that it did occur that Tuesday morning, and though it does make the most sense here, it's just too hard to say that's exactly when it did occur. I think the Orlando PD could have done a lot more in the beginning to try and help down narrow the possibilities, such as processing Jennifer's apartment for evidence both inside and out, talking with Chino's supposed girlfriend that lived on the property, and speaking with Jennifer's colleagues sooner than a week after she went missing. And though these things may not have helped in the investigation, some were never even explored, which could have maybe led to some new leads. After the Kessies were able to obtain Jennifer's files, they found out that there are a hundred fingerprint samples that have never been identified from Jennifer's car, when the family thought there were only three. There were also two hairs present inside the vehicle that were never tested. The family only had two pictures of Jennifer's car, and then once they received the files, there were actually 154 pictures of her car. Now, there were a lot of different detectives on this case in the first 13 years, but the first two detectives on this case didn't even write anything down about this case before they retired. 
They were actually brought back in to write a report because they never wrote anything down or used a computer during their investigation. Also, no activity in Jennifer's case was ever logged by the Orlando PD after 2012. Even though there's been over a thousand leads in this case, according to Drew Kessy, the Orlando PD didn't generate any of them themselves, which, if true, is completely crazy to me. Over the past 17 years, the Kessy family has tirelessly sought answers and justice for Jennifer. They have actively advocated for her case by appearing on television shows, utilizing social media platforms, and working closely with law enforcement agencies, including the FBI who looked at the case in 2010. Their efforts have aimed to keep Jennifer's story in the public eye, hoping that someone with vital information will finally come forward, but so far, that has not happened. Although it has been difficult, the Kessie family continues to push forwards for answers, seeking justice for their daughter. They have even established the Jennifer Kessie Foundation, which aims to assist other families in similar situations and to advocate for improved policies and procedures in missing persons cases. The case of Jennifer Kessie serves as a reminder of the countless missing individuals whose stories remain unsolved. It also highlights the importance of ongoing efforts to raise awareness, provide support to families, and maintain pressure on law enforcement agencies to continue investigating these unsolved cases. So now I want to go ahead and thank everyone for tuning into this episode. I know there's a lot more information in this case that could have been addressed, but I really just wanted to give anyone not familiar with this case a good foundation on a lot of what has happened over the years. Like I had said earlier, this is a case that has left me completely baffled by what may have happened to Jennifer, but I think it's important that we all continue to share Jennifer's story and continue to bring awareness to this mysterious case. If this case is something that you are interested in and you want to know more about, please check out all of my sources I have in the episode description box. Again, thank you to all my new listeners and subscribers. And like always, I have a few cases that I've been looking into, so please continue to check in on my TikTok or YouTube here in the next couple weeks, and I will have a trailer ready for my next episode. And as always, my friendly reminder, love everyone, but trust no one. I'm your host, Drew V, and I'll see you next time on another episode of Drew Crime.